You may be seated. We come to the, the last uh, chapter in our study of the book of, of Philippians. Paul gives a number of exhortations in chapter 4 as he begins to bring his letter to a close. And today we'll cover just the first seven uh, verses, briefly commenting on verses 1 through 3. There we find the Apostle Paul wrapping up the main section of his letter. But our focus today is really on verses 4 through 7. Here we find the Apostle Paul commanding, exhorting the church to rejoice, to be gentle, to pray. And then he concludes in verse 7 by reminding us of the gift of God's peace. Let us pray and then we'll read this passage. Father in heaven, we thank you for the peace that does passeth all understanding. We thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you for calling us to pray with thanksgiving. Father, thank you that you're working in us and even in the midst of the most difficult trial, others see gentleness, forbearance in us. And similarly, even in suffering, you enable us to rejoice. And so God, through these words of the Apostle Paul, your words through him, remind us of joy, of gentleness, of prayer, and of peace. These things define us. And we pray and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now God's word for God's people. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Evodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord is eternal and stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may God's word revive your soul today along with mine. First, just a brief word about verses 1 through 3. There are lots of things to talk about in these three verses, but I'm really going to deal with it very briefly because my main focus is on the verses that follow. But in verses 1 through 3, I suggest we take this as Paul giving a twofold thematic summary to the main portion, the main body of his letter. This main body of the letter began in chapter 1, verse 27, and runs through chapter 3, verse 21. And we find the themes 
stand firm in unity introduced in chapter 1, verse 27, and then they are applied all the way through chapter 3, verse 21. And now we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and it begins with therefore, which signals a transition is taking place. The Apostle Paul now is going to wrap up this main section. And so he concludes this main section by repeating those two themes, stand firm and unity. We see stand firm in verse 1, and we see the theme of unity in verses 2 through 3. Now, verses 2 through 3 are interesting because Paul uses a case-specific situation concerning two women in the Philippian church who labored alongside of Paul for the advancement of the gospel, who disagreed. They were not unified. And likely they disagreed on a matter of methodology in applying the gospel to the Philippian context. And so Paul exhorts them, be in agreement. He exhorts them to unity. And so this this conclusion of the main section in verses 1 through 3 can be summarized in simply these words. Paul saying, therefore, stand firm together. Stand firm in unity. And now I want us to move right on to verses 4 through 7. Again, the, the main focus of our time this morning. And we'll first look at a call to rejoice. These points are on your sermon outline somewhere in your bulletin. I can't remember the page number. This year, the Happiness Report, an annual report developed by the United Nations, ranked Finland for the second year in a row as the happiest country in the world. Anybody from Finland? If you are, you're happy. Denmark, Norway, and Iceland. Anybody from Iceland? Does anybody have any ancestors from Iceland? Well, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland rank second, third, and fourth, respectively. Sweden, I know we've got some Swedish folks here. You came in seventh. But all of us here, being Americans, have any idea where we ranked in the happiness report? What? Did you say 19th? Yes, that's it, 19th. Yikes. I guess we're not all that happy, are we? Can you believe measuring happiness in a country? But the United Nations does that every year. The more interesting thing is the other studies that have been done which show that developed countries like ours and the other nations that I have mentioned, developed countries, when their income, security, and happiness increases, guess what decreases? Faith. Faith in God. What a corollary. Yet the Bible teaches not the pursuit of happiness. I believe the pursuit of happiness leads to a life void of God. But the Bible teaches that we are to pursue joy. 
joy that comes about because of increased faith. The more faith, the more joy. Happiness is rooted in circumstances. Joy is rooted in the Lord who is eternal. And as we read in Isaiah 26, he is the everlasting rock. He is immovable. And the Philippians, in verse 4, were called. They were commanded. They were ordered by the Apostle Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you or I were suffering in a trial, and it doesn't really matter what the cause of the trial might be. If we were suffering and someone came to us and said, I command you, rejoice. We would think they're nuts. What are you, crazy? You can't see that I'm struggling here? Paul and the Philippians had their share of suffering. Opposition within the church and opposition from without. Yet Paul commanded them. Paul himself, who was who understood suffering, who faced it time and again, he called them to rejoice in the midst of their suffering. In fact, the command is repeated twice. It shows the importance of rejoicing. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Well, is Paul nuts? Of course not. He has a reason to command rejoicing to God's people even when they are suffering. He understands the true meaning of joy. Notice that Paul says, and this really is the key to joy, Paul says rejoice in the Lord. It's that in the Lord that's so significant. True joy is rooted in a relationship with Christ. True joy is a product of faith in Christ, of saving faith. True joy is not rooted in circumstances, but God's sovereign will and plan to bring about his purposes through Christ Jesus, to bring them, his people, to the finish line, as we talked about in chapter 3, especially verses 20 and 21. God is more concerned, and I just remember reading this in Storm's book, God is more concerned with your holiness and my holiness than he is with our happiness. And listen to what James 1, verses 2 through 4 teaches. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, you may be sanctified, lacking nothing. God is in the business of making us holy. And he's not concerned with our happiness, but he is concerned with our joy. Paul says in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. And so by faith, we are always in Jesus' presence. He is always the reason for rejoicing always. Rejoicing really is the norm for the Christian life, not the exception. 
even when situations are hard, even when situations are unpleasant and sad. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul said. And, oh, and by the way, in case you didn't hear me, again I say rejoice. Rejoicing shows that we trust God. It manifests that we're standing firm in faith. Verse 1 of chapter 4. We're standing firm. That theme is a reality in our lives. Joyous is something that should be cultivated. Our tendency is to be overcome by anxiety. And so the question is, how do we cultivate joy in our lives? And I've got two suggestions. One is trust Jesus more. Flee to him more. Flee to him quicker. <laughs> Don't wait. When the Do you know what anxiety feels like? Anybody here not know what anxiety feels like? You, it, 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 it just starts welling up, doesn't it? It's almost like it's just building ahead of steam in, in our inner person. And when you start feeling that, when I start feeling that, we need to trust the Lord, turn to him in faith. And then secondly, I would say a great way to cultivate joy is to meditate on the right things. Now what's interesting, in verse 8, Paul tells us this, but that's next week's sermon. So I'll give you a little, little uh, taste of next week. But think about it. Think about the hymns that we have sung today. All about Jesus and his glorious gospel and his work and his peace and his atoning work for us. Meditate on those things that are heavenly things, that are Christ things, that have eternal significance. And you want to, that will just cultivate joy in us. Connecting yet again with just how great God is, how loving and gracious and faithful he is to us. Rejoice then, brothers and sisters, in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The second command we find, second exhortation, is in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So as we rejoice in the Lord, even when we suffer, even when others persecute us, we will be a blessing to those around us because of our reasonableness. That seems to be what Paul is saying here. Now, what, what does it mean to be reasonable? What, what is Paul saying here? I think a great way to understand reasonableness, there, if, if you look at any um, Bible dictionary or Greek word study, you'll just see a plethora of words that could, that could replace reasonableness here. But I like one commentator who basically summarized reasonableness in these words, gentle forbearance. Now think about this. You're suffering, but by God's grace, joy has been cultivated in you through faith, and you have joy, and in the midst of your suffering, you're actually a blessing to other people around you because of your gentle forbearance. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying, apparently. 
First Peter 2.23, Peter tells us about Jesus, who is the definition for reasonableness, gentle forbearance. And listen to these words. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judge, judges justly. Jesus suffered injustices more than anyone, but he did not retaliate. He was gentle and he was forbearing even with those who were his enemies. When others make our lives miserable, when we're suffering because of, of something another person has inflicted upon us or an institution has inflicted upon us, Paul says that you are to rejoice even in that. And as you by faith or cultivating that rejoicing, the fruit of that is going to be gentle forbearance. Even our enemies will be blessed. An attitude of gentle forbearance means we're not vengeful, we're not resentful, we're not angry at people, we're not self-centered and selfish. It means even in the midst of suffering, we have so much joy cultivated because of all that Jesus has done for us that we're gently forbearing that we're focused on other people that we want to come alongside other people in a gentle way not in a harsh way or a judgmental way or a condemning way and as we think about this this quality that Paul mentions here gentle forbearance is essential in promoting unity within the church verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 that theme of unity and it's certainly essential to show mercy toward others gentle forbearance that is the fruit of rejoicing in the Lord at the end of verse 5 we're told the Lord is at hand and at this point the Lord is at hand should be taken in an eschatological way that is in a way that is understood in terms of Jesus's second coming at some point in the future he will come again he will bring everything he will consummate all things and also he will vindicate his people and I think this is important to understand the Lord is at hand one day he is going to come he's going to bring consummation all things he's going to vindicate me he is at hand now the Lord may not come in our lifetime right but when we leave this physical existence, we will be with him. So he's at hand, either in terms of the second coming or in terms of our individual eschatology, that is our death. Either way, he's at hand. And the point is, because he is at hand, because one day all of God's people will be vindicated, I can be freed up to rejoice in suffering and be gentle and forbearing even towards my enemies because one day I will be vindicated. So we need to ask the Holy Spirit to grow this fruit of gentle forbearance in us. And the Lord is at hand can be taken in another sense, not just the eschatological sense, but in a sense for today. He is always with us. He is with us right now. 
He is governing, he is sustaining, he is ruling, he is interceding from heaven. And in light of the third command that's given in verse 6, we are exhorted, the Lord is at hand, therefore do not be anxious, pray. Think of all the reasons for Paul to be anxious. He was beaten time and again, ridiculed, falsely accused, in prison. At several points, he, he was probably wondering if the sentence of capital punishment would be executed upon him. Think of how much the Philippians had reason to be anxious. They were there in Philippi under the Roman government, suffering opposition from the state. And there were false teachers within the church itself and causing all kinds of upheaval. They had reasons to be anxious. And I have reasons to be anxious. What keeps me awake at night? Sometimes I'm, I don't know. I, so I'm anxious, but I don't know why I'm anxious. I can't sleep. I'm sure none of you have that problem. But when I am particularly anxious, for you to say to me, don't be anxious, it just doesn't work. What do you mean, don't be anxious? For Paul to say to Philippians, don't be anxious. What do you mean? The Roman government's coming down on me, taking my kids, burning my Bible, or whatever they had, my scroll. But here again, the Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious. He, he not only says, do not be anxious, but he says, do not be anxious about anything. Can you believe it? Do not be anxious about anything. By anything, he means anything. The heading anything, verse 6, represents a host of reasons to become anxious. You've got your reasons, I've got mine. Paul had his, the Philippians had theirs. But, verse 6, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, the anythings that make us anxious are the everythings that we are to lift up in prayer to God. Because he is at hand. He hears our prayers, and he answers them always according to his will. And as we look at verse 6, prayer, supplication, request, they're synonymous terms. They all mean the same thing. Don't get tripped up on trying to make a distinction there. Paul is simply saying pray. Lift up whatever is burdening you to the Lord, anything and everything. And our prayer is to be framed, very importantly, with thanksgiving. Dr. Hendrickson, just a great commentator, great scholar, states that ingratitude is the first step to idolatry. And so if you want to turn from the Lord and be an idolater, just start being ungrateful for things. That's what Hendrickson is saying. But Paul says when you pray, you pray with thanksgiving. You're not turning from the Lord, you're turning to the Lord with a grateful heart. 
And thanksgiving, like joy, is a matter of faith, it's a matter of trust in God, that God is in control, that he really is working all things out to accomplish his plan, his will, but for our good, Romans 8, 28. Prayer of thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of our total dependence on God. We are his creatures, and we owe everything to him. And the object, very clearly, of our prayer is God. Let your requests be made known to God. He is at hand. He will hear. He will answer. He will provide according to his will. We can entrust anything and everything to him. We can entrust ourselves into his hands in full confidence that he will provide. He will care for us. In Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, I'd encourage you to read that whole passage in John 6. I can only read a portion today because of time. Matthew 6, 30 through 34. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, praying with thanksgiving is a matter of faith, isn't it? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Jesus' point there is that God, if he clothes the grass of the field, if he takes care of the little sparrow, he is going to take care of his people. He will care for us. To pray with thanksgiving acknowledges our total dependence on God. Prayer with thanksgiving is the antidote to anxiety. Now I know there are all kinds of medicines out there for anxiety. And my position is there's a place for medicine. We, are, we live in a fallen world. And our bodies uh, suffer the state of the fall and sometimes we need medicines to help us with anxiety so please understand me not speaking against the appropriate legitimate use of medications for, for anxiety but if that's all you do you're really missing the real significant thing and that is to pray with thanksgiving First Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And listen to this. Why would you cast your anxieties on God? Peter says, because he cares for you. God cares for you more than anybody else in this world your spouse, your children, your parents. And he says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. And when we, when we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us with thanksgiving, one of the ways he cares for us is that he gives us the gift of peace. 
Shalom in the Hebrew peace means wholeness and well-being. That's what God promises to his people, peace, wholeness and well-being. Jim prayed this morning, we're broken and we are. And yet God is working peace in us. He is working wholeness and well-being in us through Christ. Because he cares for us. Because we are anxious. And he says, come to me, cast all your anxieties on me, name them one by one. And I will care for you. And the primary way I'll care for you is that I will set a guard. Listen to this. I will set a sentry around your heart. I will set a guard around your heart. And that guard is peace. This peace is so great, it is beyond understanding. That's what Paul says here in verse 7. It's like... It's not like rejoicing in gentleness and prayer that are commands, but here, this, this issue of peace is in a different form in the Greek, and it just states a fact. Rejoice, rejoicing bears the fruit of reasonableness, and we're able to rejoice and bear the fruit of reasonableness because we cast all our, our anxieties on the Lord with prayers and supplications and requests, with thanksgiving. And then he gives us the gift of peace. The unbelieving mind cannot understand God's peace. And even, even those of us with believing minds find it difficult to really understand it. We, we can know it, we can experience the benefits of it, we can appreciate it, we can seek it, but yet we'll never fully be able to comprehend the, the, the vastness and greatness of God's peace. But he gives it to us. And how can we be so peaceful in the most difficult of circumstances? It's because peace is not a command, it is a gift resulting from thankful prayer. And the main way peace is a gift is that, as I said earlier, it, it is a guard, it is a hedge that is set around our hearts and minds, it, it protects. Every single day, I run into some type of sentry or guard. You go to the airport, you've got to go through security. If you go to the bank, normally there's a guard somewhere around there. Even if you go to a even if you drive into Parkway Village, there's a guard guarding Parkway Village. I was just there the other day, and I talked with a guard. He gave me a little sticker so I could go see someone. Sentries are posted everywhere. We run into them all the time. And Paul uses an idea that's very familiar with the Philippians because they also ran into centuries everywhere, Roman soldiers who were posted as guards 
over important places and for important people. So they understood this idea. And so Paul describes peace in terms of something that is familiar, it being a guard, it, it being a, a guard that comes around our hearts and protects us from falling in to anxiety. It serves as a guard to protect our mind from thoughts of distress and anxiety. Anxiety and thoughts that cause fear and distress are one of the major ways we are hindered in our walk and in, in living a life of faith in Jesus. And this is why we need such a guard, such a sentry around our hearts and around our minds. So here's a suggestion that I would have. Whenever you start feeling, so if, if peace is that guard around our hearts and minds that is to protect us from anxiety, and by the way, peace comes, it's, it's, it's a matter of faith, it's a matter of a relationship with God, pray with thanksgiving, total dependence upon him, and the peace comes. When, when that anxiety starts to well up, it may be a signal that we're not really trusting Jesus, that we're not really totally dependent upon him, that we're trying to live the Christian life or we're trying to live life in our own strength. And the remedy to this is to repent of self-effort and turn again to Christ in faith, to call out to him with thanksgiving and find that peace that the world cannot understand and we, quite frankly, struggle to comprehend. But it's real. And God gives it to us freely. Jesus is our peace and we must continually flee to him in faith and find that protection. Think of peace being that guard that comes through thankful prayer but that encompasses us and protects us. We need not concern ourselves in conclusion with the happiness report that the United Nations provided. I know you're glad I gave you permission not to be concerned about that. Uh, we have something unbelievable, something fantastic, something where the happiness report doesn't even reach the scale. It is God's promises recorded in Scripture, even His promises in this verse. We are called to rejoice in the Lord as we do our gentleness will bless others. We are able to rejoice because we are not anxious. And we're not anxious because of thankful prayer and God giving the gift of that century, that guard of peace. May we rest in the promises of God, in particular the promise of peace that we have here in this passage. God's ultimate gifts to his children are shalom, peace, and joy. And Paul deals with both of them in this text. And I want to leave you with this verse, a verse that Jim, a couple of verses that Jim read from Isaiah. Because this verse really summarizes, encapsulates what the Apostle Paul has taught us today. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Let us go forth in joy and guarded by his peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your promises that are innumerable. Thank you for these promises that we have here in this passage. Thank you for working joy in us, that our joy is, is rooted in you. You are that everlasting rock. Father, thank you that the fruit of joy is that gentle forbearance that blesses others. Thank you, Father, for the, just the blessing and privilege of being able to cast our anxieties upon you. And thank you for the gift of peace that guards our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that, that we would follow this word from Isaiah, trusting you to keep us in perfect peace, enabling us to be stayed upon you, to trust you, our God, who is the everlasting rock. And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.